If you only had one, what would it be? If you only had one pair of free tickets to the concert of a lifetime, what would it be? Cancelled is what you're trying to tell me. But imagine in the future, the concert of a lifetime, what concert would it be? And if there was a pair of tickets, who would you bring with you? If you only had one thing to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? If you only had one wish left, what would it be? Jesus asked this question too. In Mark chapter 12, one of the Pharisees, or one of the scribes, came up to him and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? In other words, if you only had one commandment. And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. We think we need a lot of things until something happens to upset our world. In the Bahamas on the missions trip, several people said to me, you know, we Bahamians were getting caught up in pursuing the good life until this tragedy happened and we pulled together and we became Bahamians again who were in it for each other. And so when Moncton Wesleyan people showed up to purify water, they were bringing what people actually needed, not what they thought they needed. Coronavirus is making it clear again to us the difference between what we think we need and what we actually need. These types of events strip life down to its basic values. And when we strip everything down, what's left is us and God. Verse 32 says, God is one and there is no other beside him. When we put someone else or something else beside God, that is idolatry. That's why the first commandment of the ten is, you shall have no other gods before me. The other nine commandments are built on the foundation of this first one. So obviously there's no place in a Christian's life for dabbling in false spiritualities, the new age, the occult, practicing other religions. Now a lot of you might go, oh good, I'm not doing any of that, I got that figured out. First commandment, check. But really, that's just the basics of having no one besides God. Because God doesn't want you just to have him first. He wants you to have him passionately and intimately. Now, we read this greatest commandment all wrong. We usually say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And that's kind of how we read it. But uh, there's an energy to it that comes through in the original language that I'd like to convey to you. It's sort of like saying, my people, hear me. 
The Lord, our God, he's one and he's the Lord and we will love him with all our hearts. In fact, it, it, it stops, stops saying our and, and gets really personal. It says you will love him with all your heart, the whole thing. And you will love him and you will give him your whole soul and you're going to use your whole mind and understanding and your whole strength, like from the whole thing, whole, whole, whole. So in other words, if you only had one passion beating in your heart, it would be God. If you only had one gnawing hunger in your soul, it would be for God. If you only had one obsession that was going through your mind all the time, it would be God. And if you only had one last burst of strength in this life, you would spend it in serving God. If you only had one, and it's intense. And the thing with Jesus is, he's not one to dial the intensity down for us. In fact, he ratchets it up. A really nice young man tried to follow Jesus. And Jesus turned and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The one thing that everyone noted about this nice young man was that he was rich and influential. And it was that one thing that Jesus asked him to leave behind to follow him. Why would the guy leave it behind? Well, within one generation, all his lands and properties were gone anyway. He was holding on to something that he couldn't hold on to. Money can be a good thing, guys, as long as it's not your one thing. And even better things than money can become our one thing. Family can become your one thing. Love can become your one thing. And, and there's no group on the whole planet that values family and love more than Christians. But they can't become your one thing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There's a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke. And it adds to the list that you can't love wife more, brothers more, sisters more. To, the, to, to those list of relationships that can't come before God. And the term that Luke uses is even stronger. It basically says, if there is ever a time when you're going to have to choose loyalty between God and loyalty to these other important relationships, you're going to hands down choose loyalty to God. If you could only have one love, it must be God. And then this next verse ratchets the intensity up even further. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Man, uh, if there's one thing that has marked Christians from their beginning 2,000 years ago is a willingness to give up their lives for Jesus. When you read the New Testament, you are actually reading the last will and testament of 10 martyrs. Jesus' faithful 11 disciples, 10 were martyred and one spent the last years of his life imprisoned and exiled. This story continues today. Three weeks ago in Burkina Faso, where we have a Wesleyan missionary, Islamic extremists burst into a church and killed 30 people for their faith. In India, around the same time, mobs of suddenly hypernational Hindus have been 
going around, abusing, rooting out, killing Christians in certain areas. And I have a question. If the gunman came to your church, or if the mob showed up at your door, would God be your one thing in that moment? Or would your life be your one thing? To the outsider who looks in, this level of devotion to God can seem insane. It can seem like God is asking for far too much. Perhaps we've misunderstood him in some way. But look here at Matthew 10, 38. Whoever finds his life will lose it. So in other words, if you're trying to hold on to everything you've got, you're going to lose it anyway. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's look at this one more time. Say it with me at home where you're at. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And at home one more time. Will find it. There's a promise there that's pretty incredible. It's a miraculous math because here's how life normally works. Normally we've got one or two good things in our lives and our main pursuit is to add the next thing. So we're going to add the next accomplishment, the next piece of the good life, or what I'm talking about today, the next relationship. And we figure if we can just add one more thing to our lives, then we will find our lives. But what Jesus says is lose your life for his sake and then you'll find it. It's like instead of doing addition, he wants to switch us to an exponential math. The type of thing where we give up the one thing and it all of a sudden begins to multiply and get bigger and bigger. And, and, and Mark chapter 10 explains how this works. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left Houses or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold more now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and lands with some persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now Jesus modeled this for us. What it looks like to love God more than family. Or loved ones. He left Nazareth because he was called to do so. He left the family business and he went out to do ministry. And into that ministry, he actually entered into a, a, a really intense situation. Because he was healing people and because he was speaking with such authority, the crowds began to press in on him all the time. Remember when he's at the, at the lake shore and they're pushing so hard, they push him into the water and he has to call a fisherman to, so he can sit on the boat? And go out deeper than the people can get to him? I mean, this intense pressure is on him. So Jesus comes back to Nazareth, and the crowds are pressing in on him. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus went home, the crowd gathered again, so that he and his disciples could not even eat. And when Jesus' family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus' family thought he was insane. Down in verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Jesus is in a house. They can't even get there. The people are packed in so tight. So they send word in, pass it along. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus inside, 
And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat about him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers and my sister. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Two things happened at that moment in Jesus' life. The first is that he, just, he got himself a spiritual family. And he decided to put a high value on spiritual family. But the second thing that happened is Jesus began to win his family over. You see, wherever Jesus went, as he did his ministry, he ran into other true followers of God. They would welcome him into their homes. They would help him out. And when Jesus sent out his 70 close followers to spread the news all over Israel, he said, guys, don't even take a knapsack with you. Because everywhere you go, there's going to be places that are going to welcome you in. It's going to be like you have 100 homes. You're leaving your one home, but I've got 100 homes for you. Everywhere you go, there's going to be a place for you. And, and these disciples found that their spiritual family was a real thing. You know, when we go on missions trips, it's incredible uh, the sense of family that we feel with the people that we're ministering to. You can come to people, you've got sometimes a language barrier, you've definitely got culture barrier, and for some reason, you quickly connect to them because there's a reality of the Holy Spirit that draws you together. That sense of spiritual family, guys, is even greater than social distance. It's even greater than the fact that you're at home and you're not able to be in this room right now. Because the Holy Spirit brings us together. He sh we share in Him and He makes a spiritual family. It's a quite a profound level of sharing. We call it fellowship. Fellowship isn't just a lot of food. That, that's, a, that's a misnomer. Fellowship is, is Jesus' Spirit drawing us together. And so when we put God over family, He can multiply our spiritual family... And when we put God over family, we begin to win our family over. One of the brothers who thought that Jesus was out of his mind, his name was James. Does that ring a bell for anyone? Isn't there a book in the New Testament called James? Yeah, because Jesus' brother, James, went from thinking that Jesus was out of his mind to thinking Jesus is the Lord. And part of it was the witness of Jesus in that moment where he choose, chose to put his mission ab at, uh, above what the family wanted at that moment. And the other part was that God showed up in Jesus' life. James didn't just get convinced because Jesus was a good speaker. He got convinced because Jesus was raised from the dead. And when God begins to show up in your life because you've put him first and there's nothing between you and God, that's what can really begin to convince your family of the reality of Jesus. Now, regardless, though, if we win anyone over, you know, sometimes we don't even win our family over until we're dead and gone. <laughs> you don't even know if it's going to happen. But in the meantime, even if you're not winning anyone over in your family, how many of you would like to have more love in your family or in your relationship? Anyone that wouldn't want that? Well, Romans chapter 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
And so when you make God your one thing, he begins to just pour that love into your heart. He fills your, you up and he begins to spill out to those around you. So check this out. When you love God more, he gives you more love for your loved ones than if you would love them more. And then they want more of God's love. Isn't that weird? Think about it. It's a lot of more, it's a lot of love, but let's, let's run through it. When you love God more, he gives you more love for them than if you had loved them more. And then they want more of God's love. You see, we act like love is this finite resource. We've only got so much to give. But when you have made God your one thing, love has now become an infinite resource. Wow. And so your family will find that rather than them losing resources from you, they are finding a new person emerging within their midst who is full of God's love. The other thing is, why would you uh, put so much weight on your relationships? When we let a relationship become more important to us than God, we end up putting all this weight on the relationship. Do you think that your spouse or your partner or your future hope-to-have partner is going to fill you up with their love, bring meaning to your life, and be the one that you can cast all your cares upon? That's God's job. Your partner can't be God. Stop putting so much pressure on that poor girl or that poor guy. You're going to crush them. 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. And so if we want a blessed relationship, we have to stop putting so much weight on those and stop expecting so much from them. See, Jeremiah chapter 17 describes two kinds of relationships. One's cursed and the other is blessed. Which one do you want? I think you want blessed because this is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They're like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They're like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. It's like the love's never going to run out because they're tapped right in there. And external circumstances, whether there's a lot of rain or no rain, don't matter when you're tapped in. And so we need this type of blessing in our relationships because people fail. Sometimes they fail and it's their fault. But so many times they fail because circumstances change. Their health fails, or for some reason, they're not able to be there for you at that moment. Only God is there for you at every moment. So I want to tell you five specific ways that God blesses relationships when we make him our one thing. The first is that he intervenes to save us from our self-centered perspective. He saves us, listen to this line, he saves us from becoming victims of our own myopic, self-centered, skewed versions of reality. Can I say that again? Because I'm talking about me here. Maybe I'm talking about you, but I'm definitely talking about me. He saves me from my own myopic, self-centered, skewed versions of reality. 
You ever tried to read a book with binoculars? It's just like, I'm too close. I'm too close. I just can't see. And in relationships, we're just too close. We're, we're so enmeshed, so invested that we cannot actually see reality. That's why we need the God that says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Like, let me give you another example of this. How many times have you been in a relationship, a work situation, or a friendship, where you felt like you were the one giving everything and the other person wasn't pulling their weight? Is there anybody that feels that way? Okay. I got bad news for you. You and me are so self-centered by nature that we always magnify what we do in a relationship or in a, a work situation, and we always minimize what other people do. We say things like that, well, that doesn't take very long. Oh, have you tried it? <laughs> and we, we maximize what we do, we minimize what other people do. And you know, we need the Holy Spirit to be able to come along and say, reality check. You need a higher perspective to come along and do that for you. Another thing Another thing that the Lord does for us is he softens our hearts towards each other by his spirit. As he's pouring out that love, it, it's going to take a lot of forms. Some of the forms of love are forgiveness, patience, self-control, being humble, being considerate. And, and you know, God is there to form your character so you can be more loving to those around you. The third thing he does is he connects you to good counsel from your spiritual family. Again, this spiritual family, biological family. Your spiritual family can really help you as you relate to your biological family because, again, they can be a source of perspective, counsel, and strength for you. Because sometimes we're just so deeply involved and we need help from someone outside of ourselves. The fourth thing is that he arranges circumstances to help us out in our relationships. I don't know how many times something has happened just at the moment when I had run out of ideas and options and how to keep a relationship going well or a situation going well. Here we find ourselves in this incredibly weird and unprecedented situation of social distancing. But what's the opportunity here? As this bad thing happens, what good thing might God want to bring about in your relationship with those that you're closest to? Is not maybe this the greatest opportunity that you've had on these relationships in a long time? And is this not one of the best opportunities you could ever have to get along with God and get close to Him? The fifth thing is that God becomes our inner strength when relationships are crumbling so that we don't too. And He's our inner strength right now as this world feels like it's literally grinding to a halt. And all goes still. And there's uncertainty in our loved ones. What we need is strength from the Lord in us. And now we arrive right back where we started with this message. It started with intimacy with God. And for so many people, they say, yeah, I put God first. But if God is first and you would describe your relationship with him as 
demanding, distant, cold, then you don't have yet what he has for you. The Psalms express an intimacy with God that is so special, so sweet. One of the Psalms that you'll, we hear showing up in our worship is Psalm 8410. Better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. I bet you're thinking that right now because you're not in this house. But you can still worship the Lord. Or there's Psalm 27.4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Do you know God's beauty yet? Man, there are moments when the presence of God is so real and so overwhelming, so exquisitely beautiful. He has that for you. But the psalm that sticks out the most in my mind is one that I learned through a song when I was six or seven years old. And I remember being with a bunch of kids and just singing this song. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. From Psalm 42.1, my soul thirsts for the Lord, for the living God. When can I go and meet with my God? Many times over my life, this song has come back to me in times of spiritual dryness and reminded me of the fresh, new, intimate relationship with God that he was calling me into.